0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach to their clinical practice. We offer mentoring and courses to support clinicians with the skills to handle the very real uncertainty and challenges of clinical practice. So if you're interested, reach out at tkex.org and join our Facebook group as well for discussions. Today, I am delighted and honored to be joined by Sophie Shepherd. Sophie is a soon to be titled pain physio, owner of Vive Pain Rehabilitation, working with a wide variety of pain conditions and invisible illnesses. She's completed a professional certificate in pain science uh, and a master of science in medicine, pain management, and also is a local pain educator with the Pain Rev Team, Pain Revolution. So you've got like 58 jobs at the same time. I'm honored that you've made the time for our listeners and keen on diving into some of the discussions and hearing more about you. So thank you for joining.
1: No, thank you so much for having me. Um I, I feel very honored to be here given you know the amazing podcast you've done in the past and some of the brilliant people you've had on. So I feel very privileged to be here and to be offered the opportunity to have a chat and um yeah, hopefully. My experiences help, you know, give some people out there something that they might resonate with, as I know a lot of the previous podcasts I've listened to have really done for me. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me.
0: Awesome. So nice to hear. So the famous question that we start off with, what's your story?
1: What's my story? So uh, I'm a physio by trade, as you've mentioned. Um, I I do wear a lot of hats these days. So... um, I grew up in country New South Wales, a really small town called Tamora, um, which is only a couple of thousand people, a couple of hours north of the Vic New South Wales border. Um, so grew up in a really small country town um, and went into physio straight out of year 12. I had sort of tossed up doing medicine and that was something that had always been in the back of my mind. My mum actually worked at the local medical centre as a receptionist, so I grew up around the medical profession and um, particularly being in an area like that, it was really clear that we had a lot of access issues, Um, you know, being able to have enough doctors at any one time was really obvious. So that was something I'd sort of always been aware of. And so medicine in general had sort of appealed to me um, or rather health had appealed to me. Um, But the more I thought about it as I got towards the end of year 12, the more I realised that the lifestyle associated with working as a doctor, particularly as a GP, uh, really didn't appeal to me. And, you know, I I wanted to get into health because I I wanted to help people. I know that that's a very cliche, um, you know, reason to get into it, but that was sort of the driving force behind it. And realizing that quite often the practicalities of working as a doctor means that you don't really get much time to actually sit with people and, and really um, have that extended contact with them um, it sort of put me off it and, and, and I sort of ended up gravitating more towards physio. So went off to Albury to study at Charles Sturt, um, was there for four years and uh, finished my physio with honours there. Um, and when I graduated, I started work in private practice in Wagga, um, moved here with my husband, who's also a physio. Um, and I guess I very, very quickly realised that real people are a lot more complex than the way we're taught to assess and treat at uni. So um, it was it was a really, really big learning curve. Um, and, you know, I think, Very early on, I realised I had a passion for working with people who had persistent pain and and complex sort of conditions. I think that was really the the tone of that was really set. I think even in my first week of work um, as a new grad physio, you know, my workplace were really supportive and um, they try to ease their new grads in gently. So they're like, oh, great, we've we've booked this. Uh, new patient in with you today, it's it's just an ankle injury, um, you know, knowing 90% of the ankle injuries that you get in a standard musk sports clinic, you know, might be a sprained ankle from footy on the weekend, thought brilliant, this will be a nice easy one to ease in, and it ended up being that this person had a really complex case of long-standing CRPS, uh, it was a work cover case, really distressed, lots of social adversity in the background, Um, In hindsight, it was possibly a a terrifying first patient to be confronted with, Um, but it it really, there was something about that experience that made me realise that I I just was not equipped um, by my previous learning or the way that I'd been set up to prepare myself for private practice that, you know, I just felt really unprepared to help serve someone like that. Um, And the more I worked in private practice, the more I realised that, you know, the more you look, the more you see people who maybe aren't progressing the way they should be or the way that we'd expect. And and quite often there's a lot of challenging social circumstances around that. So that sort of spurred me on into the area of pain pretty early on. Did lots of pain-related CPD uh, in my first couple of years out. Sort of started with the classic Noy explain pain, uh, which was brilliant highly recommend anyone do it if they if they haven't done it already and that sort of set me on the path so i have sort of did it done a smattering of courses um you know uh in particular the knowledge exchange uh, bps course which is just fantastic it's another one that i'd really recommend if anyone um has the opportunity to because it is just brilliant but mixed in there with you know other act courses all sorts of things basically anything i could get my hands on um I ended up linked in with Pain Revolution um, through their local pain educator program uh, a couple of years out of uni. Um, And that was really, really interesting as well. So that involved completing a professional certificate in pain science. So in terms of really helping to deepen my knowledge. It was so valuable. Um, And obviously the networks of LPEs and pain rev is just fantastic for that mentoring and and having more people to bounce off and really being able to share that passion with other people has been brilliant. So part of that role has involved delivering whole of community and uh, health professional events to try and help disseminate pain knowledge uh, in regional and rural areas. Uh, which has been something that's been quite challenging and confronting to get started with. But I think seeing the benefit that it's had in community has been a really powerful thing. So I've really enjoyed that. Um, I then ended up going on to do my Master of Science in Medicine Pain Management through University of Sydney, uh, which I've just completed. So um, I'm waiting for my official confirmation, but I should be eligible for the title of uh, APA title Pain Physiotherapist, which is quite exciting for me. Um, And sort of amidst all of that, I just decided that that sort of wasn't busy enough. So I decided that I wanted to go out and establish my own practice, which I did in August of 2022. Um, It's been going really well and it's been really exciting to see it evolve. Um, And I've been able to sort of do a few things alongside that as well, like being able to facilitate a local pain support group, uh, which was something we didn't have in our area before that. Um, and I've also been linked in with the New South Wales APA Pain Group Committee as well. So I've been able to sort of help more at an organisational level. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been a bit of a whirlwind, you know, time since graduation, but I've really enjoyed it. And probably the the most recent step is I've started dabbling in research research. Um, so I've had a few papers published and I'm also starting a PhD this year. So that gets us to, you know, about now. There's been a bit there. Like I said, there's a few hats there, but um, hopefully that gave you a somewhat cliff notes version of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the initial passion for helping people with complex persisting pain has led you down this track and um, that the the need that you, you were looking to fill with being more equipped to help. The people that probably really need our help is—I uh, can see the passion from the other side of this screen right now—and um, for for that, I'm curious what what made you um, first of all passionate to help people with complex persisting pain? Because uh, I can uh, definitely resonate when when especially if I had a first patient that had. A lot of complex issues I would be uh, avoiding scared kind of fearful of working with this kind of population group in general so what what drew you to to helping people with persisting pain I'm curious
1: yeah look it, it was kind of terrifying and I feel like for most people you chat to that go into private practice generally um there is a really big learning curve and I think most of us tend to go through a bit of an existential crisis in the first few months where it's like, oh, my God, I don't know anything. So I think that that private, private practice setting itself is a really confronting place to be learning and it's been really valuable and there's a lot of growth there. But um, I think from a pain point of view, the thing that really gravitated me there was seeing just how much people were struggling and how hard it was for them to actually access those services so I guess in my mind the question is well if I decide that this person is too complex for me to see or I put them in the too hard basket who do they see like who who is there to to do that and um I think that that was the really big thing that hit me was just that particularly I mean it's it's an Australia-wide problem but particularly where we are in regional New South Wales, Um, we're in a fairly big regional centre, like Wagga's fairly big in the scheme of things, but even we are so poorly underserviced in terms of pain services and there's a lot of issues around access to services, not just in terms of availability but also having services that are financially accessible to people. Um, there's a lot of social issues that factor into whether or not someone can actually access the care they need and I think that whole situation and taking that broader look on things really something about that hit me and you know it never has sat right with me that there are people out there that just by having the the poor luck of being in the situation that they're in you know through no fault of their own means that they have a poorer chance of recovery and that's just something that I guess have, has never sat well with me and it's probably spurred me on a little bit.
0: Yeah. That, that need to, to help the people that, that need more access and resources and time and the, the, the team around them to, to help them. And that was severely lacking. And I speaking from a privileged, you know, city boy perspective here. Um, can, can you paint the picture as well for the listeners who maybe aren't as exposed to some of the challenges of uh working in a rural setting and perhaps like what what what's needed more um so we understand that we are part of a, a wider community out here and it's not just our, our little city bubble that we yeah. live in and when working
1: yeah look and and i imagine it would vary so much depending on the area so i can only really speak to you know my local area but you know we don't even have a local public pain service. So our, you know, if I had somebody that I was seeing in in my clinic that I needed to link in, the only access we have to a public service is a telehealth support from Nepean Hospital in Sydney. Um, And their team has, while they're brilliant, and they do what they can within the confines of their funding, and I work quite closely with them, they have very very minimal funding and support to service our area so quite often what that would translate to is people being referred to them they could be on a wait list for 12 months to 18 months um, and then they if they are accepted and they they go through they'll they might have their multidisciplinary assessment with the pain team um, where they'll get a really comprehensive report and feedback to their gp but the problem is then that there's no support for any ongoing services really so they do a one day living with pain program which is a you know sort of basic pain education and self-management strategy type program but the recommendations often then come back to linking in with local professionals and accessing ongoing physiotherapy or ot or whatever it might be in the community and unfortunately we just don't often don't have clinicians. So from a psychology point of view, for example, most of the psychologists around here have their books closed. Um, It's often three to four months to get in to a psychologist if you need one. Um, And that's assuming that people can afford to pay privately because our services um, are all mostly private. Our public access is very poor. Um, We have a really horrible GP shortage in our area too. So. what, most of the GP practices are at capacity. So it's very difficult, even if you are already linked in with the GP, quite often people might have weeks or even months to wait for an appointment with their GP if it's something that's not clinically urgent, if they're not, you know, having something that medically could kill them in the next week, it's sort of we're waiting months. So, and we often rely on travelling pain specialists as well. So we have several pain specialists who travel to our area that consult privately and they're fantastic as well, but the reality is that our system doesn't actually accommodate people who don't have financial means to access those. So if people don't have financial means to pay the out-of-pocket fees, they're not really a, a viable option. So it's it's very difficult, and I think that's been one of the most challenging things for me working as a physio in this space is that the gold standard of care is that interdisciplinary um, model of care, and unfortunately that is you know, often next to impossible to achieve in our setting and in many private settings as well, not just out here, but in the city. So um, unfortunately, a lot of our time that we need to be able to collaborate and communicate with other members of the health team, even if when they are there, is not actually billable or incentivized by our current systems, which is a whole problem in itself. So there's a lot of problems that I imagine, you know, are consistent with a lot of settings across Australia but yeah we really do struggle from an availability point of view and just even having the services located here is a big problem.
0: Yeah it really helps highlight and uh, give us a zoomed out view of how the public system can intersect with the private healthcare system and what we can do uh, to advocate for better access to care for those who need it. I like Uh, be stuck in a a private practice bubble and not realize that there's a whole world and a whole number of people out there who very much need our help Mm -hmm. Um, this is very much breaking my bubble with what i see on on social media and all the kind of uh, higher end marketing for pain services Um, so it's yeah really insightful to hear what it's like um, when you don't have access and you need to wait for a whole year before you can see a pain specialist and what that must be like to navigate the systems is challenging to say the least. Um, mm. and yet you brought up a point of incentivizing for time spent with collaboration and communication. What, what other changes, obviously neither of us are working in policy or uh, have any political ties as far as I'm aware, but could be wrong. Um, but what, what would be beneficial? Um, and what can maybe clinicians advocate for?
1: Yeah, I I think that's a great question. So one of the papers that um, I was recently involved with that we've published actually got published this morning, which is exciting. Um, but one of the big things that came out of that paper was that we're really pushing for the fact that physiotherapy um, and physiotherapists in general need to be taking that broader lens view of health and we're traditionally very much focused on that one-on-one therapeutic interaction but arguably physiotherapists and by extension all health professionals really could have a powerful role to play in advocating for more sweeping social changes that we know influence health outcomes Um, so you know i think that there's so many aspects that need to be tackled. Um, When you look at all of the problems that exist around pain care in Australia, particularly when it comes to our public systems, there are a lot of challenges there. Um, You know, you can look at issues around Medicare billing and the fact that five allied health visits a year is what is currently covered under Medicare. And, you know, if you're advocating for multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary practice, five sessions across all of your allied health is not going to get you very far at all um and then add that to the fact that the rebates are so low that most clinics now can't afford to bulk bill so anyone who doesn't have capacity for out-of-pocket fees really is um it's it doesn't actually do anything to improve access for those people so you know that's a really big challenge financially that i see in practice and people just do not have the means to access you know a lot of the services which unfortunately in our area and a lot of areas are private um I don't want to, you know, get the blinkers on too much with pain around this because I think that that's a problem that is true for many health uh, health conditions in Australia. And, you know, if you really looked at a lot of the major health conditions that um, affect people who are living in Australia, there'd be a lot of need for increasing services across the board. But obviously my area of passion is in pain. Um, I think the scariest thing with it is that pain Australia recently collaborated with the government on a report um, that looked at the services available and the outcomes of people who are living in pain in Australia. And one of the things that they highlighted was that a really small proportion of people actually have access to the services that are evidence based. So uh, I'm speaking off the top of my head here, but I think it was around uh, up to 80% of people are missing out on that access. And, you know, that, to me is just a glaring gap in the system as it is. I don't think we recognise that there is such a gap there. And, you know, I just, we have all of this research to say that so much of what we do can be really helpful for pain, but we're actually lacking the infrastructure to be able to enact it effectively, which is really frustrating. And I think that's where all health professionals have a really powerful role to play in that broader advocacy Um, yeah, it it there's there's a lot that you could change and you know there are people who are much smarter than me <laughs> that uh, are looking at this stuff but you know those are some of the more obvious things that spring to mind and I think you could you could sit here for hours and talk about all the ways the system isn't serving people at the moment.
0: Yeah, and I'd be very keen to to share the papers that first of all you were involved with and congratulations on the publication today and um and yeah, looking into more of how, wh- what we can do, um, whilst acknowledging and, and building, raising awareness of, uh, all these factors that are likely outside of our control, but are impacting like everything that we do because we're all within the same healthcare system. Yeah,
1: um, absolutely.
0: there's yeah, so much and, uh, didn't expect a very simple answer at all. <laughs> um, I, I think this can touch on the, your involvement as a local pain educator and, and, and confirming when you say LPE that's what you mean local pain educator yes, sorry I figured yep. that that's okay um, uh, and what what would you say for those who aren't really across the the work that is done by pain revolution and how we can support um, whether it's from the inside or the outside
1: yeah absolutely so pain rev is a not-for-profit that was established by uh, the fantastic Laura Mosley so he Basically, got a bit of a ragtag bunch of people together, um, people who are all, you know, really motivated and passionate about pain. And they have established the Local Pain Educator Program, which is a supported program that goes over two years. And effectively, what it aims to do is to take clinicians from regional and rural areas of Australia, where we know that pain is a particular problem and, and access to evidence-based care is an even worse problem compared to Metro, Um, And it helps to upskill clinicians from those areas. So it involves mentoring and support via their their network of clinicians, but also um, support to undertake a professional certificate in pain science um, to really help with the underpinning theory. And following that training, these clinicians then go back into their communities and Establish um, what we call, they used to be called the, the pain collectives. They're now um, being rebranded to the learning circles, but same thing, um, which is a free monthly meetings or free um, bi monthly meetings for health professionals in that area. That is really just to try and get research around pain and um, more discussion around some of these newer concepts happening in regional and rural areas where we know that research is often a bit slower to translate. Um, and to help foster those networks of, of collaboration as well. So to try and, you know, foster that interdisciplinary uh, collaboration and uh, provide a mechanism for people to find others who were actually passionate about that area as well, which is sometimes really hard to do, particularly in the private setting. So um, that's what Pain Rev have done um, in recent times. They've also moved towards uh, doing community patient-focused events, so actually doing whole-of-community events that, work on trying to translate some of the newer pain science into um, digestible snippets for people who are living with pain Um, and that's been happening you know over the last sort of six months or so and yeah there's you know definitely a really strong drive to help improve outcomes for people living in pain and and the the mechanisms, I guess, and the way that Pain Rev goes about that, we might see a bit of a shift or an adaptation over time. But at its core, that's what it's hoping to do is to really help with getting those that knowledge and those skills out into regional areas and help improve outcomes for people.
0: Yeah, and hopefully that can provide some insights into what listeners can do, whether it's supporting Pain Rev or similar community outreach groups and what we can do to lessen that burden. We talked about the increasing prevalence of persisting pain in Australia and what we can do. And that's probably one of the aspects that community outreach and with your experiences in, as a physio in private practice, I'm keen to hear what was it like for you and um, yeah, the challenges as someone who is so passionate about helping people with chronic pain, what was it like?
1: Look, I I will say that, from a private practice perspective, I consider myself to be very lucky in terms of my experiences, because I have had many conversations with other physios and other health professionals in general who are working in private practice. And I have heard some absolute horror stories about the culture of private practice and, Um, I I count myself very lucky that, you know, the the team I started with and the team that I stayed with until I established my own practice were really supportive and and they were a really great team and they really were, you know, community orientated. They, you know, had a great community presence and they genuinely did want to help people. Um, And, you know, as a new graduate, they were really fantastic at investing the time and the support into us So I do count myself as very lucky to have had that because I know that there are many other people who are not as fortunate and may have had to learn the hard way that not all private practices are that way. Um, what I would say though is I sort of found that the deeper I got into the realm of pain that the more frustrated I got um, and that was not necessarily a function of the exact clinic I was working at but more so just as a function of the fact that our system currently doesn't do a good job of supporting people who are most in need. So there was a real battle between the private setting and, you know, still being able to support those people who didn't have financial means. And for me as a person, that really was quite challenging because I naturally am a really empathetic person. Um, And so I found it difficult at times emotionally to cope with the fact that there was sometimes Points where I just I actually couldn't help someone anymore and I didn't have anywhere to send them where they could be helped so that really was a can be tough and it still is tough uh, you know it that's still an ongoing problem that I come across so I think that's been one of the things that I've battled with most um, it has also been a really good push to move me towards some of more of the advocacy and like bigger picture stuff that I've been involved in so it's probably a, a, a pro and a con thing but I guess one of the other things that cropped up for me working within the private practice model is that inevitably when you're working in private practice, there is going to be this conflict between, you know, true unencumbered evidence based practice and the business models and and the needs of the business. And that's true regardless of the setting. Obviously, some businesses are um, much more cutthroat about that than others. And like I said, in the scheme of things, I feel like I was lucky and that I definitely was not working in a clinic where it was as cutthroat as you know a lot of them are. I think personally, a lot of the ideas around a lot of the business models and uh, marketing structures don't generally sit well with me. So I, I personally really struggled with things like, Uh, the typical business KPIs that are used um, around staff utilisation and patient patient visit averages, I can absolutely see from a business perspective how those things are helpful to track and, you know, why they might be vital to cash flow and there are very pragmatic reasons as to why that they, you know, are something that are looked at. But I just found that I would constantly be sort of checking myself and I, I really battled with having that conflict of, you know, what do those numbers actually translate to for the person who's sitting in front of me? And I I really battled to reconcile while, why these numbers were the target. And a lot of the time I felt like they didn't necessarily capture patient outcomes particularly well. You know, like if we're talking about patient visit average, you know, a typical number might be between six and seven. Um, I never understood why six or seven is you know, the magic number of ideal appointments beyond it potentially being a nice number from a business point of view and from workload point of view. Um, And, you know, it obviously caused issues where you could see very quickly how that might potentially incentivize someone to rebook someone more than what they might need or to encourage retention. Um, And likewise, it might, you know, I just think that that number is not a very good metric of things at all. And, and, utilization rates as well don't particularly capture um, the value that I as a physio could actually bring to someone's experience. So often the things that have been most valuable to clients is time that is not necessarily billable. Like, you know, if I give someone a phone call to touch base with them because they were really distressed in an appointment and I wanted to just see how things are going and make sure they're on track and even if it was only five or ten minutes here or there, that's a really powerful and, um, you know, potentially therapeutic interaction that I've had with that person in terms of building rapport and helping them feel supported. But yet, because that's not billable time, that's not something that's valued under those business models. So I I just found that those metrics really sort of conflicted with my own, you know, clinic morals and ethics. and And that sort of started to cause a bit of stress as well. And I feel generally from a pain point of view, Working in a general clinic, um, I started to feel more and more like a square peg in a round hole and that people who have pain often do feel quite alienated in a lot of settings. And, you know, I think one of the things we can't ignore either is that if if we are working in a general sports and must clinic, even if it's a fantastic sports and must clinic, if you're asking people with persistent pain to attend those clinics and they're surrounded by, you know, sporting, you know, setting or like that's the the general vibe of the clinic, often people feel alienated. Like that space is not meant for them because sport often feels so far away. Um, So I just really realized more and more that these are people who have, you know, complex needs. They have had quite often poor experiences with the system generally in the past and, I felt it was really important to be able to create a space and a clinic that really sort of met their needs in a targeted way rather than them being an afterthought that has to mesh in with other services that already exist.
0: It's, yeah, so it's such a complex and difficult um, area where there is that need to balance the the business and also provide that care that clients really actually need. But a lot of that care is not incentivized within our healthcare system. So it, it I can see it makes sense from a business point of view to lead towards targets that incentivize the business and the clinicians more so and focus on that. But then there's it's hard to then see what is that leading to. And, and absolutely, that the, you touched on the context of a sports injury clinic as sharing my experiences working in a commercial gym and the environment that just is not very uh, conducive to facilitate safety and uh, you know honest, deeper conversations with all the vulnerability when there are people lifting really heavy-ass weights around you um, yeah. and making lots of noise. So I think these are some concepts that are often not talked about, so I appreciate your honesty and and openness and we're definitely um, not here to say we have magic solutions but I'm interested then moving into now as a a business owner um, what have you found most helpful when working with people who have persisting pain how have you managed the the demands of working for yourself and all the added responsibilities
1: yeah it's it's definitely been a learning curve and I think it would be silly to expect that it was not going to be. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of, you know, the actual process of of deciding to do it. Uh, there's a massive psychological jump to actually go, yep, this is what I'm going to do, because that's a very scary, confronting decision to make. And it was made particularly hard by the fact that, you know, my previous clinic really were a great team to work with. So, you know, I almost felt Worse, because if they were really horrible, it would have been easy to be like, "No, I'm out." (laughs) Um, But you know, there was that added element of it too, and um, you know, I still, you know, work really closely with the previous clinic as well. So um, that was definitely a challenge initially, and you know, that learning curve around setting up all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff, like you know, knowing how to go about getting provider numbers and getting set up with insurance and registrations and figuring out what your processes are going to be and what practice management software you're using and what codes you need to use and all that sort of stuff is the little stuff that you know you you don't really get a feel for until you actually attempt to do it. And that that sometimes can be a bit scary too because there's not a really good manual for, you know, you've decided to open your health clinic. Here's what you need to do. Um, So for me it was a bit more like you know just feeling it out as we went and having to do a lot of my own sort of research and thinking things through. But I feel like you know that's that side of things is settled in now. I guess some of the things that i found, I guess, challenging is that it, it is definitely harder to switch off. So, you know, working for someone else, it's a lot easier to just clock in, clock out. You don't have all the background business stuff that you need to worry about. Um, you don't have that level of responsibility where, you know, if things crop up, that's on you. Um, so there's definitely a lot more personal responsibility, which I've found not necessarily as, as challenging, but it's definitely a presence there in the back of my mind all the time. Um, and I think most people you speak to that own their own clinic or you know, run their own business, they find the same thing. It's just much harder to actually switch off. I think one of the things that I've found the most challenging with it is that, like I said, the, the demand for pain services is so high. Um, and because I'm effectively the only person in town who's working in this area, Um, I've almost had the opposite problem of what, you know, you'd expect for a new business in the, instead of being quiet and having to build up, I've been too busy. And that has been stressful because it's now meant that I've got people sitting on my wait list for several months before they can get in to see me. And that again, personally, knowing that I'm the only person here that does this and I'm having to make people wait for months because I don't have the capacity that has been challenging for me just personally. which obviously is something that is going to probably be a bit of an ongoing issue, but I feel like it's been a good prompt to sort of try and do a bit more self-work around that and to, you know, make sure that I'm really putting things in place to look after myself, which maybe historically I haven't been as good at. So it's been a good prompt, but it's also been quite challenging. I think some of the things that have been most helpful uh, is just having those networks of people that I've been able to chat to and to bounce ideas off. Um, you know, there have been a, fr- a few people who have been incredibly generous with their time uh, that have been through it before that are always happy to, you know, listen through, give advice. Um, you know, Jason and Luke, uh, who have both been on the podcast before, have both been fantastic. So even having resources like the podcast where we've got other people talking about business ethics and, and balancing the challenges of private practice has, has been really valuable as well. Um And I think just in general, one of the things that has really helped me is approaching the business from the sense that from the get go, it's been established to try and best meet the needs of people living with pain and invisible illnesses. So I've found that looking at it through that lens has helped me to be much more comfortable with staying flexible in the way that I do things. So I've deliberately not locked myself into thinking that the way I've established things and the way that I do things in the start is going to be the way it's going to be indefinitely. Um, And I think really just maintaining that sort of reflection and going, is this working? Does something need to change? Can something be more efficient? Uh, Has been really, really helpful for sorting out some of those early problems that cropped up. So, um, and I'd hope that in the long term too, it's going to mean that I can continue to help serving those needs as best i can uh within the confines of you know some of the other systems and things that i need to work within too
0: yeah, i think it's easy to look for a um black like a white kind of framework to just plug everything in and then there's efficient systems in place already but then that can sometimes detract from the outcomes that you're looking for and then helping the people that you want to help and there's mm-hmm. always that need to reflect on the processes and uh, individualize it according to your setting and your context and it must be difficult to find resources you know there's I don't think there's many physios private clinics doing exactly what you're doing in in (laughs) the world probably I'm going to make that claim I'll happy to be proven wrong
1: yeah I look I'd love it if there were more of them and I think that's been the challenging thing is that I sometimes joke that I I feel like I'm a really good pain clinician, but I'm probably a shithouse physio. And I think that that stems from there not really being a framework for people who really, you know, are sole practitioners working with pain, you know, so much of the literature and the evidence is around multidisciplinary teams. And that's all well and good, except that most people don't work in a multidisciplinary team. So there's been a massive learning curve and, you know, figuring out as a physio, how does this knowledge and these skills sort of sit alongside my professional identity and you know there's there's been a lot of challenge in the way that I think about the way that I practice and that's probably reflected in some of the processes I I do within the clinic too so the the typical way that I would um you know go about seeing a new patient effectively we we spend the first two sessions just as assessment and that's Pre framed with the person. So we treat those first two sessions just as a really comprehensive assessment and development of a collaborative management plan. So that assessment, usually the first hour, is just history taking and subjective because it takes that long to actually allow people to tell their story. And quite often it flows over into subsequent appointments. You know, you're still only skimming the surface of that. But being able to dedicate that time is really valuable because it starts to really flag aspects that may potentially be um, amenable to change to help someone progress. And even just in the initial stages of developing rapport with people, which when people have gone through pain and they've had quite often really horrible experiences with the medical system, actually being able to provide a safe space that people can come and just share their story and feel listened to is massively therapeutic in itself. So really gaining that trust early is important to me. So that first hour is often just really comprehensive subjective assessment with the second session then including more of a physical assessment as needed. Um, And then at the end of that second session usually involves us chatting about basically the holistic strategies we can use to manage pain alongside the more specific. So instead of me going, this is our physiotherapy plan, it's this is a plan Um, or a suggestion of things that you might be able to do to help your pain. And this is the bits that maybe I'm well-geared to help with. Maybe we need to link other people in. Um, Maybe you don't actually need me right now. And maybe you need to, you know, link in more with this person who can help you with this as a priority first. It just depends so much on the person. And I think going into it with that lens and assuming, not assuming that I am going to be the right person for that, person at that time is really important and I've had people who have had that initial assessment we've done that plan and after discussing it with them they're like you know what yeah I think this aspect is more important for me to focus on first so let's do a few things to get that sorted with these other professionals or or by myself and then maybe let's link in down the track once I've sort of got that side of things sorted so really being collaborative in that and looking at it through the lens of what does this person need and what opportunities do they have to help themselves improve and then working backwards from that and going how might I fit into that picture and do I need to fit into that picture is sort of how I've shifted which I think is possibly the most radical shift from working for myself than working in another clinic Um, and so far it seems to be working really well and I think it, it does help a lot from the perspective of helping people feel like they've got that control and that empowerment to know what the plan is and what they can do and to have that autonomy and deciding what is going to be the best fit for them
0: yeah not only the autonomy and the choice and empowering them with the like shared decision making but also that time to think of ideas and like what's coming up for you what's having those questions to like that time for question and answer and for feedback along that journey. Cause we think that it's just an input, is simple yes or no, I'll do this treatment or this intervention and this approach, but they need to know the ins and outs and they need to, we need time to find out their previous experiences and, and their um, stories that they might attach and the meanings behind approaches. So then we can better tailor it, but we can't do that in 30 minute subsequent <laughs> Follow up sessions, especially if we're, uh, you know, back to back, and everyone else is also thirty minutes, and they're also dealing with their own complex issues. And as a clinician, we're trying to juggle all these tasks at once. We can't even be present and listening to the person. So I think there's a lot of uh, invisible value in the time needed for this process and making it about the person and their pain and less about this is this is quote unquote EP or physio, and this is the service that I deliver to you. So Abs- that, that sounds like a huge paradigm shift.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that is something that I see as being really important. And it's it's been challenging because, you know, particularly for physios or, you know, other professions that might typically be seen as like the physical profession. So EPs, osteos, chiros, anyone, you know, there's an expectation that, as a physio or as a musculoskeletal practitioner generally that, you know, there's a set expectation of what's going to happen in a session with you, you know, as a physio, it might be that I've got to do some form of exercise or manual therapy because that's the physio stuff. And I think that's where those feelings of thinking, you know, I'm a really good pain clinician, but maybe not a great physio because I have many sessions where actually what that person needs in that session is actually an opportunity to debrief and connect and, You know, I used to have in the back of my head all the time when I, you know, was earlier in my career that, you know, I felt like I'd maybe failed a session or I'd been not productive in a session if that whole session had been taken up by just sitting with someone and talking about their distress or, you know, talking about the things that are really challenging them for them at the moment and feeling like, well, I haven't done my physio stuff. So, you know, I would even battle with the idea that, oh, maybe I shouldn't charge them for that session because I haven't done the physio stuff. And there was so much of my professional identity tied in that when it's really missing the point of, you know, if that's where that conversation has led, that's obviously what that person needed at that time. And there is so much value in being able to sit with that and as a clinician to be able to actually sometimes sit with the discomfort and that unease that can you can experience when you're hearing some really confronting or challenging stuff and and maybe not knowing what to say or what to fix or how to fix it because quite often those situations aren't fixable by us Um, and being able to sit with that and see the value in that you know is really important and if that means that maybe we don't get to the stuff that our profession would tell us is the the core of our profession well you know sometimes that's something that we have to be okay with and that arguably is actually in line with person-centered care which is what we're meant to be striving for but sometimes our professional expectations and our own perception of identity gets in the way of that so that's definitely been something that I've noticed a lot in the change in the way I practice I'm definitely a lot more comfortable to not necessarily check those boxes if it's not what that person needs at that time.
0: Yeah, the, um, the identity of being a pain clinician definitely resonates um, from myself professionally and a lot of EPs that I talk to where we're drilled to be exercise prescribers and provide exercise prescription for chronic conditions. And so anything outside of that, it's like, no, that's not my role. Mm. That's not my job. So it's, it can be it must have been a quite a process for you and it says a lot that you were able to actually have that time to reflect and and see who you want to be helping and how you can help those people and so that now your identity is almost like flexible and shift to more towards more a pain clinician a pain coach mm-hmm. um, and there's so much value in in that space there that we can provide for working with the the feelings the discomfort in a session what we say and what we also don't say. And it opens up the avenue to, I'm imagining for your marketing, for KPIs, they also would have shifted from that perspective. And I'm curious what, what those are like to the marketing, what kind of KPIs you use.
1: Yeah, to be honest, uh, I, I'm i slack on the KPIs. I <laughs> I have an idea of my break evens. And so I, I know as a business, you know, this is roughly where I need to be sitting in terms of um, income. To be honest, I've been in a very privileged position in that I've been able to keep my overheads quite low. So that has never been a, a big concern in the back of my head. I'm sure it would have been if if it had been slower to fill the books. But because I've sort of, gotten quite busy quite quickly, that real financial concern hasn't necessarily been as prominent. Um, I The way that I've sort of tried to manage the, you know, the fee structure side of things is that I wanted to balance people being able to access services when they're financially limited with also the reality of having to run a business and actually earn a living and feed myself. So the way that I sort of went about that is that I have set what my fees are and they're in line with the value that I feel I bring but I've set aside a certain number of appointments per week that are bulk billing Um, and so if people need bulk billing appointments um, and you know those appointments have sort of already been filled it may be that they need to go on a wait list um, which is not ideal in itself but in terms of you know I guess managing (laughs) multiple influences there it's sort of trying to find the best situation that you know sort of sits the most comfortably with my own ethics and morals around that and that's sort of the solution that i've sort of found sat well with me particularly because i don't i don't agree with the idea of cutting down bulk build sessions to 20 minutes or 30 minutes which would be the standard so it regardless of whether people are bulk billing or full fee paying they get the full hour long session and that's just a a loss that i cop because that's how it sits with me um but Yeah, so there's a few things we sort of do to manage that balance there, Um, but primarily I've been focusing more just individually on patient outcomes. Am I, you know, am I actually seeing improvement in this person? Uh, Is the person improving, you know, are they reporting that things have gotten easier or that they're enjoying life more? Um, I'm sure that as the team grows, there will need to be more structure around certain things and I'm not, you know, naive to that, but for the moment that is has been working well for me and I think moving away from having those business KPIs right at the forefront initially has been really helpful in being able to guide my thinking so yeah it's definitely a challenge and I know there's been a lot of really good conversations had about KPIs and, and what that looks like in a private setting particularly where the bottom line is a little bit tighter Um, and I, I think it's something that is not easily solved so <laughs> I um, I'm really interested to keep having conversations with people about this and, and seeing what works for other people who are working in a similar situation.
0: Yeah. Uh, you touched on the, the point of uh, acknowledging the context and some clinics require a certain a different number of KPIs and different sets of KPIs to, to earn a living literally. so mm. I think um, I also share a similar privilege of uh, not having a website not having set KPIs and being the worst person to ask about business, it's, <laughs> it's nice to hear that I'm not alone, number no, one, and number not. two, it provides some ideas, I think, for for people to who, who are also interested in um, maybe starting up their own practice and, and seeing where that might lead. Um, I've got a couple more questions. One was your PhD. Tell us a bit more. Why, why did you do this to yourself, first of all? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm a, I'm a glutton for punishment, clearly. I uh, just thought that things were looking a bit quiet on my end and I needed something to fill all that spare time. Um, I just, look, I, I like I said, I sort of started uh, collaborating uh, with a brilliant physio named Ryan McGrath, who I know that you know, uh, and he's doing some brilliant work in his PhD at the moment around suicide prevention uh, for physiotherapists. And I started working with him on a few different papers and um That's been really interesting and I've enjoyed challenging myself in that way because it's been quite different to just the clinical work that I've been doing since graduating. Um, I've always thought that I would like to go on and do a PhD at some stage. I just didn't necessarily think it would be this soon, Uh, but uh, I think it really stems from that real interest and passion in the area of pain. So uh, my topic is basically around hoping to develop a co-designed set of competencies or entrustable professional activities. So effectively coming up with a framework for a post-professional pain clinician role. So um, as we've sort of already touched on and a lot of people have raised in the past, it seems that as clinicians get more and more pain informed and as they sort of go further into that realm of treating chronic pain, the boundaries between professions starts to really blur. And there are a lot of issues around access to multidisciplinary teams, as we've flagged before. There is this emerging idea of transdisciplinary care in pain management, which really looks at this idea of um, people being able to share skills and knowledge across disciplines. And so, you know, you end up with clinicians who might uh, sort of step beyond what the traditional confines of their scope of practice would be based on their professional background. But there's a big limitation in that in that most of the research around transdisciplinary pain care is based on multidisciplinary teams. So when you think about, you know, the reality of the setting of most clinicians who are working in pain, most of them are in private practice or they're in public where they might be more isolated and not working in a pain team. So I've always thought as a physio, I don't really have a good idea of where my involvement and the, the breadth of my skills should start and stop. I feel very confident in my theoretical background and my knowledge of the skills that we can use in pain management but medico-legally I don't know where my scope of practice should stop Um, and I know that there's a lot of clinicians out there who are very pain-informed who may not necessarily be harnessing the full extent of their skills out of fear of you know um, ramifications or not having that security of a framework for what that could actually look like so the whole idea is to end up with an evidence-based model that could be used for you know feasibility studies so having a single allied health professional um, who has done some extra training who can basically meet most of the needs of someone who has pain rather than relying on a full md team and so hopefully that could be used in a public health setting in areas where we can't get a full team um it could be used to reverse engineer training modules um, or potentially providing some supporting evidence of safety for clinicians generally so that they can start to harness some of those skills outside of their traditional scope of practice um yeah so it's going to be a bit of an undertaking and we really have no idea what it's going to look like because we've never actually asked each of the professions what would be realistic for one of the other professions to assess from your traditional domain? And, you know, what are those things that we need to be aware of and, and where would those boundaries sit for someone who stepped into a post-professional role? So I'm really excited about it. That's um, very early days. So I don't have, you know, much to go on there, but that, you yeah, know, never know that might be a future podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm tuning in. Cause I see those um, the topic of like, boundaries and scope of practice and how it can look from the outside completely different to traditional you know traditionally trained ep physio chiro osteo when it comes to helping a person with pain and acknowledging the complexities and the the experience of pain that can look very different and mm-hmm. so i think we need a bit more information about that there's definitely a, a gap um yeah very curious to hear um it, kind of touches on the how our identity can itself change and our what we see ourselves as and our role as clinicians as therapists in this space can shift the more we learn more about pain Um, so with that in mind based on what you've come across and your experiences and further education for for the new grads out there who are also passionate about learning more and upskilling in pain what advice would you offer?
1: Uh, Oh, there's so much. I think the, the main thing really is do your best to stay curious and to just stay humble as well. So, you know, challenge everything, learn as much as you can, but really try to stay humble and maintain that flexibility to shift with new information. Like, I think... One of the biggest problems we have is that we tend to anchor ourselves to our, you know, our habits or things we've done in the past or what we feel we should be based on our profession. And that's not always in the best interest of the people we're trying to help. So just really keep that person at the forefront and work backwards from that and figure out, you know, where do you fit or where don't you fit or you know, how are we best going to help that person rather than how can that person fit into what I would like to do in this clinic session? Um, Yeah, I think there's a lot, but if we can maintain that curiosity and that humility and just keep the person at the forefront, that goes a long way to, you know, making sure that we're achieving person-centered care.
0: Yeah, amazing. I think the recommendations will change as we find out more information so the the value of staying curious questioning processes and assumptions that we have and putting that person at the front and center of all that we do I think is not said enough with all the debates of intervention versus intervention profession ego involved I think that's that's probably one of the biggest barriers from my perspective of what I've seen and heard um, to upskilling and to helping people who are actually suffering and Mm -hmm. need more time and need, we need to hear from their lived experiences.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So is there anything we've missed and I didn't ask that you'd like to share um, before we wrap up? I I could talk for hours on this
1: Oh, absolutely. I feel like you know we we could very well be stuck here for days if uh, you really let me go on a tangent. But no, I feel like I've talked enough <laughs> for the moment. But um, you know, uh, these are such complex issues that you know to try and distill down into you know a single conversation is just you know impossible. But yeah, no, I just want to say I've really valued the opportunity to have a chat about this stuff, and I think the more that we keep chatting and raising these questions and you know sharing our experiences and our unique perspectives on stuff I think we're all going to benefit from that so yeah no thank you very much for having me and I just hope that um I've helped some people out there in terms of shedding a bit of experience on things or maybe there's something that has re- resonated with other people
0: yeah absolutely I, I think the takeaway is we need to get a PhD we're to learn <laughs> our business do it all no <laughs>
1: limit the number of hats is uh yeah
0: you've definitely inspired me even in this conversation so for listeners who are also keen to reach out to you to find out a bit more um and hear more about your work and research as well where where can we find you
1: yeah so you can find me on linkedin so just my name's sophie shepherd and it's h-a-r-d not e-r-d Thought I'd escaped with an easier spelling when I changed from uh, Dallenberg to Shepherd, but turns out not so much. Um, and I'm also on Twitter, so you can find me at Soph underscore Shepherd, and my business website where you can also reach out, um, have a look at. Hiring opportunities because I am actually currently looking for staff to expand the team. So if anyone's interested or wanting to reach out, um, looking for mentoring, anything like that, you can also head to vivepainrehab.com.au. That's V-I-V-E, pain rehab. Um, and, yeah, always more than happy to have a chat or collaborate. Um, yeah, I love nothing more than talking to other people who are passionate and and, you know, either looking to chat or to, you know, have weird and wonderful projects that they (laughs) just want to get involved in. I'm always up for it. So don't hesitate to reach out.
0: Amazing. Love that. love the passion that you brought to this conversation and to all your work. So thank you very much. And keen for part two. I'm sure there will be one.
1: Thank you so much for having me.